Good morning, ladies. Uh, for those of you who are new, we usually begin, if you have any questions, maybe it's a little loud, uh, have any questions for me, you can feel free to ask those, or you can funnel them to your leader and force her to raise her hand and, and ask the questions. So, uh, do you have any questions this morning? Yes, Connie. Am I going to talk about the we and you? I sure hope so. It's in here. It's more pages than it used to be because I had to increase the font size, and I'm, I may have to increase it again. I'm not so sure. I'm a little too uh, vain to wear my glasses. Yes. The <laughs> I promise he's revealed it. Am I going to go over the mystery of God's will? Yes, I will go over the mystery of God's will. Any, any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful to be here. We're so grateful for your word. Father, this um, particular passage uh, to me is just so overwhelming um, when I think about um, just all you have done for us in Christ and uh, how much you love us, and that's why you did it. Father, we cannot help but give you glory for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, just to go over uh, Ephesians. Oh, and I should, a couple things before I start. Well, hi, most holy reverend or something. How are you? <laughs> That's our pastor, Tim Weeby. Now I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> who sent you? <laughs> before I start, I want to say just a couple things. I forgot to mention last week that I am now downloadable. Actually, I have been for a number of years. So if you miss a lecture or if you just enjoy my voice to fall asleep by. Uh, I am on uh, Brookside's webpage under Women's Messages. At, as of right now, I'm, I'm the only woman there. It probably won't stay that way, but right now I'm the only woman there. Also, um, without consulting me, the NIV people decided to change the translation of the Bible. And then they also decided to say, Thus saith the NIV people, the NIV 1984 shall be no more. And it, so it is written and so it shall be done. And you can't find it anywhere, even online. So when I go to Bible Gateway and I, you know, click and press and copy and paste to my PowerPoint, it has to be the new NIV. So it will be. Except for in the places where I refused to do it and I backed up and I typed in what I preferred to have in there. So it will not, if you have an NIV 1984, which is what I have and what I've done my studies from, although I will plug for ESV study Bible, that's my personal study Bible and I love it. It is also my workout plan because it weighs about 122 pounds. Um, but uh, if you, you know, if you, just so you know that if you follow along in your NIV 1984, what's up here will not always match. Unfortunately, one of the primary commentaries I use is the NIV application commentary series, and that is based off the 1984. Uh, there are not a lot of differences, but there are some. There's one right in the first two verses, and I had to change it out so that the lecture would make sense. Uh, okay, so uh, Ephesians, just to kind of give you the briefest of reviews from last week, was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written at a, in a, about A.D. 70, or 60, excuse me, A.D. 60. And it was sent to churches around Ephesus. It was probably sent to Ephesus as well, but because um, 
because of the general structure of the letter and because it is less personal than some of Paul's other letters, it probably wasn't sent just to Ephesus. It was affiliated with Ephesus from a very early time, but it was probably what's called a circular letter, and you can see the map up there in what is now called Turkey, that went to uh, churches, went to Ephesus, which was a port city, and then on the way to Colossae, because Colossians was written at about the same time. Uh, Tychicus probably distributed that letter to a number of churches. Paul's readers for Ephesians were primarily Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. And we'll get to that, whoever asked the we and you. We'll get to that in a minute, because that's what the we and you has to do with. Very early on, Paul would go first, he always did, go first to the synagogue and preach the gospel, and he'd usually get tarred and feathered and run out of town. And so then he'd go to the Gentiles, and it became revealed through that that God was not just calling Jews to himself, but he was calling Gentiles as well. There's a whole thing in Acts on that. It's, it's wonderful, the, the uh, Jerusalem Council. Um, and so it, you know, it, it, it was probably sent, it was probably being read by mostly Gentile Christians. And that'll play into what we're talking about today. Okay, so let's begin with Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. I have the little clicker today, so I'm in control, which I love being in control. Ask anyone in my family. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So ancient letters had a form. It just kind of like we, you know, dear John and love Amy kind of thing. Why did I pick John? Um, anyway, dear Jeff. <laughs> I did date a John. It's a long, funny story, but I'm not going to tell it now. Uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, you know, there's, there's a form to those letters, and it was the sender's name, the recipient's name, and then greetings. So if I'm writing a letter in ancient times to Liz, I say, Amy, to Liz, greetings. Now, Paul follows that form, but he does it in his own unique way. He doesn't just say Paul. He describes himself. He gives his office. He says Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He doesn't just say to the Ephesians. He says to the church in Ephesus. Actually in Ephesus isn't in there, but to the church. And then he describes them as they are saints. They are God's chosen people. And they are the faithful. Now what that means is not it's not a statement about the quality of their faith. It's a statement that they have faith. In other words, he means to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And then instead of saying greetings, he employs a play on words. He does this, by the way, in all of his letters. Instead of the Greek word for greetings, which is that first word up there, I have no idea how to pronounce. Too bad the most holy reverend already left. I do know the second one, though, because the second one is very similar, and it's charis which is grace in Greek. So instead of saying greetings, he says grace. Grace to you, not greetings, grace. How much more personal and meaningful is that? And then he says peace. Now he would have used the Greek word for it, which I think is E-I-N, but I don't write that down because I don't know for sure. But that was a common Hebrew greeting, still is, shalom. You greeted one another, you said hello and goodbye by offering peace. So grace and peace to you. 
And then after that time, after, the, after that sort of opening, the person would usually offer a prayer or a wish for the people's good health. And that's what Paul does in beginning in verse 3, and it actually is going to go all the way to verse 26. Um, so this is our opening of the letter, and I want you to notice how Paul places Jesus Christ at the fore from the very beginning. In all three elements of this, he says, Paul, the sender, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's people, the recipient, who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then his greeting is grace and peace, not just to you, but from God the Father uh, and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is all over, even these first two verses. So when Paul says he is an apostle by the will of God, what does that mean? Well, the word apostle just meant anyone who was sent on official business. Apostle, small a, is just if you were sent as an emissary of someone else, you were an apostle. But in the early church, apostle, capital A, was a specific office held only by a few men. And the requirements were it had to be one that had been with and had been called by Jesus. And Paul believed that his conversion on the road to Damascus qualified him for that, and I would agree with that, and nearly all of the church for 2,000 years would agree with that. So this included the 12, minus Judas, of course. He kind of excused himself. Uh, but it also included, most likely, um, James, the brother of Jesus. If you hang with me, if I don't scare you away this semester, I'm teaching James in the spring, and that's who wrote the book of James. It's going to be an interesting study, but we won't get into that now. Um, so Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and when he says that, he is not just identifying his office, he's saying something specific. He is saying that he has the authority to teach them God's word, God, what God has to say, and that what he is teaching is God's word. It is from God. And then he says he is an apostle by the will of God. We tend to think of the will of God as something we have to figure out. So should I take this job? Should we move here? Should I marry this person? In Ephesians, and this is an important um, sort of topic in Ephesians, that's not really what God's will means. It's certainly not what he means here. He's saying that he is an apostle according to the will of God. He is an apostle because God chose him to be that. That was God's purpose for him. So in Ephesians, in Ephesians um, the, the idea of God's will has more to do with God's purposes with regard to humanity than it does with something we have to figure out. So God has a purpose and a plan, and that is his will. And then he calls the people to whom he is sending this saints. Now, we tend to think of saint as somebody's first name, you know, like Saint Paul or something like that. Uh, but that's not what he's talking about. Literally, a saint is someone who has been set apart. That's what the word actually means, set apart by God for God's purposes. All believers are saints. Anyone who is a follower of Christ has been set apart by God and set apart for God and for his purposes. So the point um, is, is that we are holy because God 
has done that. God has made us holy. God has set us apart. It's nothing that we do. I am holy, not because I live some sort of extremely wonderful life, because I got a newsflash for you. I don't. I am holy because God did that. It's a reflection of God's work in my life that I am a saint, not anything I have done. It is entirely God's action in our lives. And then we come across this idea of in Christ Jesus. This is so central. In fact, I probably, if I would have been choosing all by myself, I probably would have named this study in Christ because it is so central to Ephesians. It's not just central to Ephesians, it's central to all of Paul's theology and therefore all of Christian theology. And so this, this idea of being in Christ can carry three possible meanings, not meaning either or. Depending on the context, it can mean one of three things. The first thing that it can mean is um, what a believer obtains or what believers obtain because of Jesus. So we will read in 1.7, Paul writes, in him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus, we are redeemed and we are forgiven. We have that in him, only in him. Um, secondly, it can mean what a person does. Uh, in, in Ephesians 4, 7, Paul will write, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. In other words, do this in the Lord. Do this because uh, of this is what the Lord wants you to do. So it can be something uh, a person does. But most often... It describes the oneness we have with Jesus as believers, the oneness we have with Christ. And that's what it means in these verses. It is our union with Christ. Now, we're going to see this a lot in Ephesians, so I want to take the time to just lace, not just glaze by because it's just only the first two verses, but I, I, I don't want to just glaze by it. I want to, to spend some time unpacking what that means. Uh, laying some groundwork for it. Paul would say that just as surely as we live in the region of Omaha, we also live in Christ. And that shapes us. Uh, Jesus' values, his character, his purposes shape our lives. I was raised in the home of Marty and Danny Colliday. I am a blessed woman to have been raised in that home. But the way we lived and where we lived moving every two years, actually less than every two years, living all over the world, being one of four girls, that's a big one for me. That has shaped a lot of who I am. It has defined a lot of who I am because I lived in the house of Marty and Danny Colliday. Uh, that is a similar thing to what we have here. He defines, Jesus defines who we are. Uh, theologians often say, and, and I tried to wrap my mind around this, I hope I'm getting close, that, that Jesus is our sphere of influence. Jesus is our sphere of influence. Um, think back with me, and actually it's still this way in many parts of the world, but to a time when the, the social sphere in which one was born defined their lives. It defined, it made decisions for them. Who you married was determined by your social sphere. What your job was was determined by your social sphere. Um, who, you, who you engaged 
with your friends were determined by your social sphere. If you were very wealthy, if you were a landowner, if you were a gentleman, as they said in Britain, um, and didn't actually have a job, you only associated with lower social sphere people if they were serving you. And if you were one of those servants, you only associated with them by being their servant. That was your sphere of influence. In order to explain this, and just because I wanted to, I decided to pay, play a clip from Pride and Prejudice. Now, we're just going to watch a couple minutes, and it is going to make you want to go home and watch the whole thing. And feel free to do that, because I may be doing that this afternoon. But I do have a little clip from, uh, from Pride and Prejudice. One of my favorite, this is, I, I, I said, actually I said Sense and Sensibility would be the movie I'd want to star in, but this is pretty close. So watch this. Let me be rightly understood. This match to which you have the presumption to aspire can never take place. Mr. Darcy is engaged to my daughter. Now what have you to say? Only this, that if he is so, you can have no reason to suppose he'll make an offer to me. The engagement between them is of a peculiar kind. From their infancy, they have been intended for each other. It was the favorite wish of his mother as well as hers. While she was in her cradle, we planned the union. And now to be prevented by the upstart pretensions of a young woman without family, connections, or fortune? Is this to be endured? It shall not be. Your alliance would be a disgrace. Your name would never even be mentioned by any of us. These would be heavy misfortunes indeed. Obstinate, headstrong girl, I'm ashamed of you. I have not been in the habit of brooking disappointment. That will make your ladyship's situation at present more pitiable, but it will have no effect on me. I will not be interrupted. If you were sensible of your own good, you would not wish to quit the sphere in which you've been brought up. Lady Catherine, in marrying your nephew, I should not consider myself as quitting that sphere. He is a gentleman, I am a gentleman's daughter. So far, we are equal. But who is your mother? Who are your uncles and aunts? Do not imagine me ignorant of their condition. Whatever my connections may be, if your nephew does not object to them, they can be nothing to you. Tell me once and for all, are you engaged to him? I am not. And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? I will make no promise of the kind, and I but must beg you not to importune me any further on the subject. Not so. When I read uh, Jane Austen, in my head, I think like Jane Austen. It's, it's odd. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but the, po the whole point, uh, and by the way, spoiler alert, they fall in love, they get married, it's wonderful. Um, the reason I played that is to talk about that sphere. She wasn't supposed to quit that sphere in which she was born and in which she was raised. Jesus is the sphere in which we live, and it can't be quitted. We are there eternally. I love what Klein Snodgrass says about this. I don't know how we get to that next slide. Thank you very much. He says, Paul's assumption about geography, about living both in a specific place and in Christ, is a profound insight into life with God. The Christian faith is not an attractive set of ideas or a nice avenue to follow. Rather, it is so deep an engagement with Christ, so deep a union with our Lord, that Paul could only describe it as living in Christ. 
To live in Christ is to be determined by him. He shapes who we are. A person cannot be conscious of being enveloped by Christ and behave in ways totally out of keeping with his character. Jesus has transformed us. We are in him. He shapes us. He defines us. He is our sphere of influence. That's the best way I can uh, describe it. It's really a lot easier to understand just by living it. So then he goes into his prayer, which is not a wish for good health. It is so much deeper than that. And I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then we're going to go back piece by piece. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given, freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first uh, to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked within him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What a beautiful passage that is. This is, this is not some wish or prayer for good health. This is a doxology. This is praise. It is an expression of praise for all that God has done for us in Christ. Those of you that grew up in more traditional churches as I did, you know what doxology is. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I don't know who wrote that, but I think he was meditating on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 when he did. In fact, Paul is entering into worship. He probably dictated this, and I love to picture him dictating this because he is entering into worship even as he writes this. And at the same time, he is modeling worship for us. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Klein Snodgrass calls it virtually doctrine set to music. Um, and it, and this, this, this prayer will continue until verse 23. This prayer, this prayer has four emphases in it, four things that Paul is emphasizing. The first thing he emphasizes, and you just can't miss it, is this idea that we are in Christ, and all that we have is in Christ. In the Greek, he uses some form of that 11 times. In the NIV, it's nine times, in the NIV 1984. Uh, and then uh, the, a second emphasis is this idea of to the praise of God's glory. Three times, Paul says, he, God did this to the praise of his glory. God is to be glorified. He is to be praised, and he is praised 
for all he has done in Christ. The third emphasis is God's pleasure in his plan. Why did he do it? Just because it gave him such a kick to do it. Just because it delighted him to do that. Uh, and then the last emphasis is election or predestination. And we may run out of time, so I don't have to teach. No, that's good. <laughs> that God has chosen us to be his own. In the Greek, this is one long 202-word sentence. I, I love that. Uh, but not everyone appreciated that. In fact, there's one theologian who shall remain nameless, not one of the ones I studied, that called it the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever found in the Greek language. What does he know? This is effusive praise. These ideas, these thoughts on God are just tumbling out of him. He can't contain himself as he, as he makes an attempt to describe the magnitude, the lavishness, I love that word, the lavishness of God's love for us as expressed in Jesus Christ. This one sentence, this one run-on sentence, is centered on three participles, all of which are God's doing. God has done three things according to this passage. God has blessed us, in verse 3, Paul says. God has predestined us, in verse 5. And God has made known to us, in verse 9. Paul's main point here is the goodness of God as revealed uh, in his desire to choose a people for himself. But God blessed us for a reason. He didn't bless us just to bless us. He blessed us. He chose us in order that we might be holy. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I messed you up, Angela. Let's go back one. It's not wanting to work for me. Oh, that's the next one? Where's one and two? Hello, did I mess up? Hi, Josh. Hi, Lulu. You know what? Go back to the first part of uh, that 3 through 14, and then we'll, we'll score. Actually, if I can do it, can I do it? Hello, will you help me? Thank you. There we go. I don't know how I missed that. Go back one more. And go back. Oh, wait. Uh, okay, now go back. Oh, yeah, no. Oh, you were right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I wasn't looking. There we go. Thank you. Three and four. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Um, so this is, a, this is praise be to God. This is a praise. Why? Why are we to praise God? Because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And Paul's going to go on to enumerate some of those, redemption, forgiveness, election, adoption. But the point is they are blessings that are only to be found in Christ. We only have these blessings because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And they are those things that give us life now and eternally. But what does he mean then when he says we have these blessings in the heavenly realms? Interestingly enough, this is the only place where Paul uses this term. It's the only place where it's found in all of scripture. He is not describing a place. He's not saying we have these blessings in heaven. In other words, he's not saying, yeah, you're going to get these blessings, but ha-ha, not until you get to heaven. Because we do have them now. We are forgiven now. We are chosen now. We are redeemed now. 
in part, not completely. We have them in part. It's what, um, but we will experience them fully in heaven. It's what theologians call the now and the not yet. Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. He, his work is complete. He has done it all. The blessings that he lists are already ours in Christ. However, they will not be fully consummated until heaven. We've been forgiven. Do you still sin? I still sin. That's the not yet part. Someday, someday, that will no longer be a reality. So although we are still living in what Paul calls this present evil age, we are at the same time linked to those heavenly realms by these blessings which are now ours in part and will someday be ours completely. But more than that, Paul is telling us that there is a larger reality to this world. There's a larger reality than this world. This physical world is one reality in which we live. But there is, there is a larger reality, there is a bigger reality, a spiritual reality that also exists. There is more than this life. There is more than this world. And ladies, this world is not our home. Praise be to God indeed. But notice that this reality and the blessings that come with it are only available in Christ. We receive these blessings because we have been incorporated into Christ. He is our source of salvation. He is our source of blessings. I already told you that I was raised in the home of Marty and Danny Colliday, and there were a myriad of blessings that, became, that came from that. Not just food and shelter, but love and affection and piano lessons. And I got all of those because I was in their home. It is because we are in Christ that we have these blessings. Um, and it is available to us only because of Christ. But we were chosen for a purpose. And that purpose, he says, in order that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy means to be set apart by and for God so that we might be his. Blameless does not mean perfect. If it does, we're all sunk. Blameless means we were set apart in order to live a life that honors God, in order to, in order to live according to his word. So from the very beginning of his letter, Paul tells us, and he will tell us again, that blessing always comes with responsibility. Life in Christ transforms us in order that we might live a life worthy of the calling we have received. That's what he'll tell us in 4.1. In Ephesians 4.1, he'll tell us, I urge you then to live a life worthy. After he's three chapters of these are all your blessings, so based on that, live the way God wants you to live. 
Well, then in verses 4 through 6, he's going to talk about election. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, before we start, because some of your translations might be different, that, that term in love actually could either go with what comes before or what comes after. The NIV has obviously translated that in love he has predestined us. It could also be that we were, we were created to be holy and blameless in his sight in love, also to be loving. Um, which is it? I mean, both could be true. Um, I would lean toward the latter. I would lean toward the way the NIV interprets this. Uh, but the scholars I read actually disagree on that. So here's our brief, our very, very brief primer on election, and it is my opportunity to tick somebody and probably lots of somebody's off. But before I do, let me say to you that I believe that this is something about which Christians can disagree. Not even everyone dis agrees with me on that, but I know believers that don't agree with me on this, and believe me, they are every bit as faithful to Jesus as I am. Uh, election, um, in fact, by the way, the two scholars that I read disagree with each other on it. Um, election has two basic camps. The first camp is called Arminian, so named after the Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius, who was sort of the first to uh, kind of flesh out this idea. And, and that says... Arminianism says that God chooses for himself a people. He doesn't choose you, 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 and you separately. He chooses us corporately as a people. So it's not an individual thing. But rather God has chosen a people and those who trust Christ are part of that people. The way Klein Snodgrass would um, describe it is that we are not elect and therefore in Christ. We are in Christ and therefore elect. That's how one, the, one of the theologians I read would describe it. So we are corporately the elect. Calvinist, the Calvinist view, so named for the French theologian John Calvin, believes that election is an individual thing. That God chooses individuals that then make up his people. Uh, so we are elect and are therefore in Christ. It is primarily an individual thing. Now I want to point out that nowhere does Calvin and nowhere does scripture say that we um, should have to worry about whether or not we're elect or that we're supposed to do anything because we're elect. Like we're not supposed to nanny nanny boo boo, I'm elect and you're not, you know, something like that. Um, but that God as a sovereign God has chosen individuals. Now, election is talked about in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, over and over, God says, I've chosen my people, Israel. So that seems like a corporate thing, doesn't it? But who did he choose first? He chose Abraham. Abraham's an individual. And his people came from Abraham, came from the individual that God chose. Here's the problem, and please note that this is, I'm doing this, I'm doing one of these Saturday Night Live things. The problem, okay? The problem with Calvinism. 
The problem with Calvinism is it makes us queasy to think about a God who chooses some and refuses to choose others. It brings up that whole elementary school playground thing, like I'm the last to be chosen. I never was, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it makes us queasy, and at the same time, that same God makes us responsible for our own choices. That doesn't seem fair to us. Um, now, the problem with Arminianism, the problem with Arminianism, Arminianism, is that God chooses a people. But that people is made up of individuals. Are they not also as individuals chosen? If God chooses, uh, has, has chosen a people but not individuals, we are left with a God who is not completely in control of our salvation. We have some control over our salvation. And nowhere does scripture teach that. In fact, Paul is going to say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved, uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is of God, not of works, so no one can boast. So, where do I fall? With the caveat that some of my own pastors, whom I respect, do not agree with me. And with the caveat that it has changed a little bit over the years. Um, while I would not deny the corporate element that we are God's people, um, the corporate element of election, um, the blessings that Paul enumerates here, our redemption, our forgiveness, our salvation, come to us as individuals. They don't come to a people, they come to individuals and they are given to individuals. I would therefore say that while it is true that God has chosen for himself a people, uh, that, that we are saved as individuals, and therefore we are elect as individuals. And we are also elect as God's people, God's people. I don't think it's an either-or thing. I, don't, I, think, I think Arminianism creates actually an either-or thing. I believe that God cho has chosen people, and that people has chosen a, you know, people individually, and that people make up the corporate uh, elect. If you disagree with me, I'm good with that. I hope you are too. The more important thing here is the purpose of election that Paul gives us. It is entirely relational. God is a relational God, and it is an expression of God's love for us. It is an expression of God's value of us. To choose someone is to value them. I am the only woman that Jeff Keezer ever met that he asked to marry him. That is, he chose me. That is an expression of love. That is an expression of value. And that is, the, that is part of God's purpose in election, is to express that love and that value. God's purpose is also to adopt us as his sons and daughters. I get this. I get this more now than I ever have before because of that little girl right there. That is Lucy May Kohler. She is my niece. And she could not be more Bill and Missy Kohler's daughter, and she could not be more my niece if we shared DNA. She's from Ethiopia. We don't share any DNA, but she's mine. And I delight in her. And I am jazzed that I will have adopted grandchildren and I will have adopted grandnieces and nephews because this little girl came into our lives. We delight in her. 
That is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. We are his, and he delights in us. In fact, the next thing that, that Paul says is, why did he do this? Because it just gave him so much pleasure to do so. He delights in doing that, and he delights in us. And the ultimate aim of election is the glory of God. Now, when Paul says to the praise of his glory, he's not saying God's you know, doing one of these, patting himself on the back, I, I deserve glory for this. He's just saying when God reveals himself as a loving, saving God, the inevitable, the inevitable outcome is praise for him. It's the only possible response um, that we can have. When God is revealed, Klein Snodgrass says, praise is the inevitable result. And then Paul goes on to say, we've been inundated with grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now, again, we have a problem with, this, with wisdom and understanding, with all wisdom and understanding. And there are two choices. It could go, as the NIV has here, um, it, it goes on and says, with wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. But it could be that he lavished all grace on us with all wisdom and understanding, with what comes before it. And both are true. Again, I would lean toward the latter, but it could absolutely be either thing. How did I get there? Okay. So God lavished his grace on us, but uh, he made known to us the purpose of his will. Uh, grace is a wonderful word. It, is a, it carries with it a combination of ideas. It carries with it the idea of mercy, and particularly the mercy of a superior, someone who doesn't necessarily have to show mercy and chooses to show mercy. It also carries the Hebrew concept of hesed, which you find all over the Old Testament. Uh, it's the word on the board. And it's often in the Old Testament translated loving kindness, but it also carries an idea of covenant faithfulness, that I am committed to you. I'm committed to be faithful to you. It is, as you've probably often heard, God's unmerited favor. It is completely undeserved. It is giving someone what they do not deserve. It's when you know your kid deserves a spanking and you grant them grace. You grant them grace instead. By the way, when you do that, tell them you're doing that. It'll help them understand the concept of grace. And this is what Klein Snodgrass says. He says God's that grace is God's unbelievable acceptance of us. It is not just something God gives us, but it is God's giving us to himself. Giving us to himself. Grace is an active force that doesn't just save us, but it is part of all of life. We are not only saved by grace, we live by grace. And then he says we're redeemed. Redemption is, means to buy back, to buy something back. And in, in ancient times, it was mostly slavery. You could buy your way out or someone could buy you out of slavery. There it was always a payment price for redemption. And Paul tells us the payment price for our redemption 
was the blood of Christ, which is a way to refer to Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Ladies, grace is not cheap. Grace in any form, on any level, always requires something of the one who is granting the grace. Saving us cost God the life of his son. Our grace is a costly grace, and we should never cheapen it by taking it lightly. And then he also says we have forgiveness. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which is kind of an extension of forgiveness. In other words, because we have been redeemed by Christ, we are also forgiven. Redemption is release from sin. We no, long not, we no longer live under sin's indictment. Rather, we live in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And then in verses 8b through 12, God talks about the mystery, or Paul talks about the mystery of God's plan, his twofold plan. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So we're going we're gonna to end with this. I just want to give you God's twofold plan. The mystery is something that's been revealed by Christ. And the mystery that was revealed or revealed by God has two parts to it. The first part of that is to bring everything into unity under Christ. It is an expression of Christ's complete lordship. That God's plan from before time began was to make Christ, Jesus Christ Lord. It's what Philippians 2 says when Paul says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the first part of the mystery. The second part of the mystery is election, that we have been chosen by God and adopted as his children. And then Paul says, we who were the first to believe. He means his, the Jews that were the first, not just the apostles, but those initial believers who were almost exclusively Jewish. That's the we. And then he's going to turn around and say, but you were too. When you believed, you were chosen. You were adopted when you believed. Those are the Gentile believers who were also adopted. We will um, pick up next week with verses 13 and 14. But I just want to... In, 30 seconds or less, uh, apply this. Because Paul is modeling worship for us here. And worship can only be learned by doing it. When I was about four years old, I thought I could swim. And I spent the entire winter swimming. I swam in the bathroom. Look at me, mommy, I can swim. I, I swam on the, I vividly remember this. Swam on the rug. So the first day the pool opens, daddy takes us to the pool. I can swim! So I rushed down to the deep end, which was like four feet tall, but I was only three feet tall. And I went down the slide, and I did not swim. I went glub, glub, glub to the bottom. I vividly remember being dragged out by the, uh, the lifeguard, and my father looking down on me, scared to death, thinking my wife's going to kill me, too. <laughs> and I look up at my dad, and I go, 
I thought I could swim. I remember that so well because swimming is something you can only learn by doing it. And worship is something you can only do by, learn by doing it. And Paul is teaching us here. There's spontaneity here. It's not something that's planned. He's just effusive. He's, he's tumbling over his own words and praise. But there's also deep, eternal truth in what he's saying. That's a primer on worship. Ladies, we were created to worship. We will worship something. Either we will worship God or we'll worship something that is not or someone who is not worthy of our worship. Ladies, only God is worthy of our worship, God and God alone. Therefore, let us forsake worship of anyone or anything else and worship he who alone is worthy of our worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as I was driving here today, I heard the Stephen Curtis Chapman song that says, every moment that I live and breathe is a moment meant for worshiping. May we live and breathe worship for you, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.